Well, good evening. It's good to see you guys. Welcome to our Christmas series, our December series. We're doing uh, some of the studies, character studies out of the genealogy of Jesus. And it's good to be back just in some Bible history and lessons. And uh, let me say a prayer and we'll dive right into this. This is really an interesting lesson tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the ability we have to gather and study your word. I pray that as you increase our knowledge, you'll also let your word seep into our hearts as you did our character tonight so many centuries ago. I pray for all the needs of this group, so many uh, here that we would lift up to you. I pray that you would uh, meet those needs, whether it's comfort, whether it's easing anxiety or pain, whether it's physical needs. I thank you for this community and pray you continue to bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can text questions during class to that number. It's also on your handout. We are looking at the genealogy of Jesus from the book of Matthew. And in this three-week series, we're going to take three different characters and just go back, look at what's happening in their lives and what's happening in history. That's important to me, as you know, because I don't want you to think of Bible stories as disconnected stories, you know, once upon a time but see them in real history, real geopolitics, real what's going on in the world and how God's working in the world. Because if you understand the Bible as God real in the world then, you'll also see the relevance of God real in the world today. So we're gonna look at these stories from all different angles, a spiritual angle, but also a political and a historical angle. The genealogy in Matthew is split into, it's a stylized genealogy. It's three sets of 14 generations. It does not pretend to have every generation there, but it's three sets of 14. The first set of 14 goes from Abraham to David, approximately 2000 BC to 1000 BC. The second set of 14 goes from King David to the time of the exile. That's approximately 1000 BC to 586 BC, when Judah is conquered and carried away into exile. The third set of 14 goes from the exile, 586 BC, to the birth of Christ. And so they cover large swaths of history. And in our last lesson, we looked at David and Solomon and their kingdom. And we looked at the story of probably a lesser known king named Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Rehoboam has the historical fame of taking the greatest kingdom of Israel built by David and Solomon and running it into the ground. And so his example was interesting from a negative perspective. And we'll go back and we'll start there and catch up. As we go down those generations to the time of the exile, we get to another king named Josiah. Josiah's king just before the exile in 586, he's going to start reigning in 640. I'll give you these dates again later. But in between Rehoboam and Josiah is about 300 years. So I'd like to start by just sketching what's happening to Israel over that time period. Now, just to put it in perspective, our nation has been around less than 300 years. This time period of the kings, just in this one section, is more than 300 years. And so a lot has happened here, and I'd like to sketch some of the big themes so that you get a feel for setting the time of Josiah and what's happening on the cusp of probably one of the greatest uh, events, greatest tragedies in Jewish history, and that's the exile. 
So let's go back to where we left our story last time. After Solomon's great empire, Rehoboam takes over. There's basically a split in the country. And it turns into a northern kingdom called Israel, which has ten tribes ruled by uh, a local boy named Jeroboam. And the southern kingdom named Judah, which is in smaller, was ruled by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. By the way, one easy way to remember this is if you think about a J, it kind of points up, and an R kind of points down. So when you're at parties and you want to amaze your friends at trivia games, you will remember Jeroboam, king in the north, Rehoboam, king in the south. So that splits into two. Not only is it a, really a political problem that it splits into two, it's also a spiritual issue. If you remember that northern kingdom, those ten tribes under Jeroboam, begin to quickly, quickly drift away from serving God. Solomon had started that by marrying all those foreign wives, and he began to build temples for them. He began to build temples to their gods. He married them to cement these international alliances. Remember, he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. A lot of those marriages were very political. But he would build uh, palaces for them, and he would build temples for them. Well, then in his son's era, Rehoboam, he continues that. He basically continues the slide in the south. Jeroboam, it's not a slide, it's just right off a cliff. One of the things we saw in the northern kingdom of Israel is you'll see there in Bethel in the south and Dan in the north, where those little symbols are, he built his own temples and began to do their own sacrifices. He didn't want the people in the north going down to Jerusalem and visiting there to worship God, so he set up temples in the north. And so the spiritual climate in Israel quickly departed from God. I showed you one of those that exists today. This is the remains of the temple in the northern section in Dan that's left today. And the one in the south at Bethel was identical to it. It has an altar in the middle. It's really a little bit of a model, not the same size, but a model of the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the same doors, the same passages, the same setup. So he was trying to mimic what happened in Jerusalem, but he wanted people worshiping there instead of going to Jerusalem. And so this is the remains today of that temple that Jeroboam built up in Dan. During his time, and remember, this is about 930 BC, so when he built these temples and started doing this, there's an interesting prophecy that happens which I didn't mention last time, but I want to mention it now because you're going to see that prophecy come true in this lesson. So in 930 BC, Jeroboam is kind of doing sacrifices at these temples. He's the king of the northern uh, ten tribes and kingdoms, and so he's there doing these sacrifices. And a prophet of God comes while he's doing the sacrifices, and he says this, By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah, southern kingdom. He went up to Bethel. As Jeroboam was standing by the altar ready to make an offering, and he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. He said, O altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David, meaning a descendant of David. And he's in our genealogy that leads to Jesus. On you, on you, this altar in Bethel, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here. And human bones will be burned on this altar. 
That same day, the Son of God, uh, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. This altar will be split apart and the ashes upon it will be poured out. Needless to say, he was not welcome to stay and they kind of ran him out of town. But he basically said, listen, Israel, God says, you know this isn't right. And in fact, out of the line of David will come a man who will end up destroying this place. You will see its destruction. Well, that happened in 930 BC. And we'll pick up the story here in a few minutes. But let's talk about what happens over the next 300 years. During this time period, Israel's fate is politically determined by two great powers. And this is true for Israel. Actually, this is still kind of true for Israel today. It's becoming even more true for Israel today. But Israel's always been sandwiched by the sea on the west and a desert on on the east. And so it's the little strip of land that the great kingdoms in the north, think Iraq and Iran, that area, have to travel to fight the great kingdoms in the south, think Egypt, then and now. Egypt's been a powerhouse for 4,000 years. So you have Egypt in the south alternately uh, threatening Israel as they move through to battle whatever kingdoms in the north, and then the various kingdoms in the north are always trying to get down to Egypt. Both of those are rich areas. Egypt is very rich. If for the Roman Empire, it was, the, uh, it was basically the, the farmland. It exported corn that really fueled the Roman Empire. In the north, you have the whole area of Mesopotamia, very fertile around that, those rivers as well, very productive. So you have very fertile uh, kingdoms in the north and south, very rich, very militarily powerful. For that 300 years, Israel and Judah, those two nations, were always trying to play some kind of balance of power politics. And their alliances would shift from Egypt in the south to whatever kingdom was powerful in the north. And they were always trying to build their alliances. During this time period, the Assyrian Empire was pretty much ascendant. In other words, they were the great power in the north. And they were very militaristic, very expansionistic. In other words, they wanted to expand that and conquer as many as they could. They were brutal, brutal people and uh, very greatly feared. A lot of archaeology to, uh, to talk about what they, what they did and what they conquered through that time period. I want to fast forward from 930 BC to about 740. We're going to get closer to Josiah, but we move down the generations a little bit. Israel and to some extent Judah both continue to move away from God and embrace the gods of the surrounding uh, countries around them, the ones that God had warned them against. Politically, they're enemies, Israel and Judah, and they continue to try to form their alliances. The big thing to decide at this point in time is with whom are you going to ally yourself? Is it Assyria in the north or is it Egypt in the south? Who's going to win? Well, Israel and Syria, nation of Syria, get together and form an alliance and they decided that they were going to uh, attack Assyria, that they were not gonna pay tribute to Assyria anymore and they were gonna rely on Egypt to help them, and they said to Assyria, you know, you just stay up there and leave us alone, and we don't, we're not going to pay you tribute, and we're going to be against you. King of Judah at that time made a different political calculation, and they asked him, you want to join the alliance 
with us because we're going to combat the Assyrians. King of Judah at that time said, that's a bad political bet. I'm not in on that deal. In fact, uh, I'm going to stay neutral in this thing, and I'm not going to oppose Assyria. So Syria and Israel decide, look, we can't have an enemy to our north, the Assyrians, and a potential enemy to our south, the kingdom of Judah. So they said, so the first thing we need to do is get everybody together, and we need to conquer Judah, our fellow Jews here in the south, and then we'll be united. And so they begin a war against Judah. King of Judah at that time calls up the Assyrians and says, hey, could I talk to the president or at least the foreign minister? He gets somebody on the phone and says to the Assyrians, look, these guys are your enemies, and guess what? They're at the moment my enemies as well. What do you think? You want to come down to this party and help out? The Assyrians say, love to. Matter of fact, we had plans to come by there anyway on our way to Egypt, you know, to fight those guys. And so they come swooping in, and the Assyrians come to the aid of Judah. They're not necessarily fond of Judah. They just, it's a great opportunity. It's kind of like today. If you think, remember the Soviet Union strategy, oh, 30, 40 years ago, when they would move into another country, they would be invited in. And that's still something that happens today. You want to legitimize the invasion by saying, well, there are people here who are inviting us in. If you remember the recent issue up in the Ukraine, it was, well, we're actually only coming in to protect Russian citizens. That's kind of what was happening with the Assyrians. They said, oh, it's not that we're just warlike people. Of course they were, but we got an invitation to come help out some poor people down there in Judah. So they come swooping in and conquer the entire area. It turns out that Israel and Syria made a very bad political calculation. And so in 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in and conquer the entire area. They don't conquer Judah. I mean, they require them to pay tribute, but they don't remove the king of Judah. They don't uh, destroy their lands, but they absolutely destroy Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. This is 722 B.C. The kingdom in uh, Israel, the capital is Samaria. And one of the policies, the reason this was so devastating is that northern kingdom of Israel was made up of 10 of the tribes of the Jews. The Assyrian policy of any place that they invaded was to deport the people who lived there and import people from somewhere else they had conquered. They decided that if you just mix up the population, it'll be much, much easier to rule the area. It was a pretty smart calculation. So what they did was they took huge numbers of the population from Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, which ceases to exist at this point, it's part of Assyria, they deport them and take them way over into Babylonia. They take people from other parts of the world that they had conquered and settle them in the old uh, kingdom of Israel. Pretty smart move because for one thing, people get dispersed and they lose their sense of ethnic identity. In other words, your mayor is, you know, in this country and half the uh, uh, people in the uh, Chamber of Commerce got shipped somewhere else. Very hard to get together to rebel. Also, your young people are not so likely to fight and die for land that they're renting. I mean, it's not their homeland. And so it was a very astute move, but it had the ethnic consequence of literally dissolving the people they conquered. They simply ceased to exist as ethnic groups of people. 
And so those northern 10 tribes of Israel, this is where the 10 tribes of Israel got lost. The lost tribes of Israel are lost in 722 BC because they got deported and mixed up. And so over the hundreds of years, they begin to intermarry and they just don't exist as Jews anymore. They're just people who live in this area. Does that make sense? That's where the 10 lost tribes went to, is they simply got dispersed because of the Assyrian policy of deporting the people that they conquered. It was a very effective policy. Judah was able to keep their ethnic identity. They were subject to the Assyrians, but they were able to keep their ethnic identity. And they simply paid tribute uh, to the Assyrians in the north. So at this point in time, that getting close to when our story opens, what we see with the kings of Judah is they have departed from God and they're relying solely on their political skill for their success. To this point, they're at least there, but they're in the awkward position of being the last little piece of land between the Assyrians in the north and the Egyptians in the south. And so as our story opens, our young king Josiah has a real political issue and problem on his hands. As our story opens in 640 BC, moving forward just a little bit, the Assyrians are having some trouble too. Because the guys in Media, which is over, think more Persian type area, think more Iran, and Babylon have teamed up. And so from the backside, they're starting to get some pressure. And they begin to fight some battles with this new Babylonian empire that's coming up. And so that gives Judah a little breathing room. So let's go to the story of Josiah. This is the world in which he becomes king. It's a political landmine. There are a lot of things happening. He's also walking into a spiritual nightmare. I mean, his country is, has, doesn't following God at all. It's gone so far that they don't even have a copy of the Bible anymore. I mean, you can't even find a copy of the Bible. It's just completely pagan. In fact, I want to read you a little scripture to give you a feeling of what's going on at this time. So Josiah becomes king when he's eight years old in 640 BC. When he becomes king, he finds this going on. In the temple that Solomon built, there are altars to Baal, the god of the Canaanites of that area, and his girlfriend, Asherah, who's a fertility goddess. Literally in the temple, there are services being held. It would be sort of like if you came to crossings one day to go to church one Sunday, and we weren't having church. Instead, we had a completely different religious organization in here doing something else. And you're like, what happened? And that's what was going on in the temple of God. They weren't doing, worshiping God there anymore. They had kind of, you know, rented out parts of the temple to worship other gods. So they had Baal and Asherah there. They had priests who were burning incense to Baal, to the sun god, to the moon god, and to the gods of all the stars. They had uh, the Asherah poles, which are kind of like trees, uh, that where people would worship the goddess Asherah inside. They had rooms and houses for male cult prostitutes from some of the cults of the areas around them, also in the temple grounds and vicinities. They had high places all around on tops of every hill. You would have these altars to the various different gods and goddesses. You had the god Molech. 
Uh, and in the Kidron Valley, people were sacrificing children to the god Molech, one of the gods of the other area. They uh, had an altar built uh, that Manasseh, who's Josiah's grandfather, had built in the temple vicinity. Then all around Jerusalem, you had the various temples to the different gods that Solomon had built, and there were good little followings from them because Solomon's wives and then their kids and kids be, began to recruit people to come worship all these different gods, Chemosh, Ashtoreth, Milcom, all the different gods around them. So even the temple of God was unrecognizable. In fact, in the doorways of the temple of God, they had these large stone statues of horses. It's a really interesting little twist historically. And those horses were symbols of worship of the sun god. And in fact, I'm going to show you a picture because this was found. This is a smaller version. This is a small stone horse figurine. And on its head, it has a sun disc. This is very likely what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the figures, although these would have been larger, that were literally the entrance of the temple. This was found from the 7th century. We're in 640 B.C. We're in the 7th century in the area of Jerusalem. And so what the Bible writes is pretty much verified by the archaeology that by this time Israel's worshiping all different kinds of gods and goddesses. Well, this is the environment in which the young man Josiah becomes king. Now, he became king at eight years old, and you're saying, why, how do you become king at eight years old? Here's how he became king. His grandfather, Manasseh, was terrible king. I mean, the scripture says he did more to move people away from God. He was, he was spiritually completely bankrupt. Then his son Ammon took over. That's Josiah's dad. He not only was spiritually bankrupt, he was such a bad leader that his subordinates murdered him. Now, I don't know about you, but I've thought about it in my business career before. I know I haven't thought about it, but the point is, this has gotten so bad, he has a palace uprising, and the people he supervises killed him. Well, the people of Jerusalem said, whoa, enough of this, we don't want you ruling us. So they kill those guys, and they take young Josiah and say, okay, you're going to be the king. So at eight years old, he becomes nominally the king. When he's 16 years old, he actually begins to take over. And let's see, let's kind of follow his career a little bit scripturally because he radically departs from the legacy that he's gotten. He has a political legacy that's difficult. He has a spiritual legacy that's a disaster. And, but this young man, when he's 16 years old, becomes the king and makes a decision I'm not going to continue in the path of my father and my grandfather and these hundreds of years how we've departed from God. Scriptures say in the eighth year of his reign, 16 years old, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In his 12th year, time he's 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all the high places and the Asherah poles and the carved idols and the cast images. This is a bold thing for a young king, a young man to do. He decided that I'm going to go back and follow the God of David. And we're going to begin to get rid of all this idol worship around him. And so he begins to get rid of the idol worship. The second thing he decides to do when he's 26 years old, in the 18th year of his reign, he decides we're going to refurbish the temple. 
We're going to get rid of all the stuff in the temple, and we're going to bring the temple back to be simply devoted to God, and we're going to take all the money we've been collecting, and we're actually going to refurbish the temple and bring it back to what is glory of Solomon's time. He sent his secretary over to the temple of the Lord. He said, go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready all the money that we've brought in, which the doorkeepers have collected, and trust it to men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. Pay the workers, the carpenters, the builders, the masons, have them purchase timber and begin to repair and restore this temple. So he not only makes the internal, the spiritual decision to go follow God, but he carries through. This is very interesting symbolically. It's not just a private decision. He begins to take it public. He's going to make a symbol for the whole nation to see that we're going to rebuild the temple of the Lord. There's a really powerful lesson in that, by the way, and that's true for us as well. Christianity isn't housed in a building. Christianity isn't about a, a particular place or a particularly nice building or a cathedral, all those things are great tributes to people's devotion to God, but that's not the essence of following God. But there needs to be some outward sign because it's a powerful symbol of people. That's one of the reasons we build churches. It's one of the reasons historically Christians have built places, partly because of places to worship and gather and community and have Sunday school and classes, but it's also a symbol, an outward symbol of this inward faith. Are the buildings themselves holy or special? Not necessarily, but they're powerful symbols. Crossings today, for example, community center, clinic, school. Why do we do those things? I mean, they're all manifestations of our ministry to reach out and do hopefully the work of Christ in educating and healing and training and doing work for people who need it. But they're also visible symbols that say, this is a reflection of our belief. That's what Josiah was doing. He said, it's important to refurbish the temple of God because it's a visible symbol of this belief, this powerful idea. Something unexpected happens, though. When his secretary goes over and talks to the high priest, and the high priest says, great, got the money, we'll get the guys going, we're going to refurbish it. But something unexpected happens. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to the secretary, by the way, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Let me tell you what he said. I found a copy of the Bible. Now, that sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? Why would you not have that? But for over 100 years, as you look in the text, it becomes clear they don't have a copy of the Bible anymore. And when I say the Bible, a little disagreement as to exactly what he found, but think the first five books of the Bible, the book of Moses. He said, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to the secretary who read it. So he reads Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Again, little argument about what he found, but he found a book of the law of Moses. In other words, God's covenant with his chosen special people, the Israelites, or at least what are left of them. The, the, non, the ten tribes are gone, but the rest. So he read it. Then he went to the king and he said, your officials have done what you said. They're going to refurbish the temple. But he said, but one more thing. Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read that book in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the law of Moses, you know, think about the Ten Commandments, 
You know, think about the choosing of Abraham and you will be my special people and I'll make you into a great nation and you're going to be my chosen people to bless the world. Think of all of the things that are written in that book. He read it to the young king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, it says he tore his robes. And that's a sign of mourning. It's like, oh my goodness, listen to what the special people we were and look at who we are. This is what God requires of us, and look at all the idols and what we are doing. And he just was grieved at that how far they have gotten off course. And there's a lesson there as well. It's really hard to stay on course without some kind of guidance. And when the Bibles were gone, when the book of the law was gone, it just accelerated people's movement away. And frankly, you see that today too. When people are not reading the word of God, the book of the law for him, the New Testament for us, the movement away from God accelerates because we begin to do what we think is right. Josiah read that and realized, look how far we've fallen. And so he began to grieve. But the next thing he did was he did this. He called together all the elders of Judah, the, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem, and he went to the temple of the Lord with all the men of Judah, invited all the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the law of the Lord. And he stood by the pillar in the temple and he renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord. He recommitted. Those of you that came from an altar call thing, rededication. All right, came forward, everybody comes forward and rededicates their life. That's what he did. He said, we have not followed this, but as of today, this is going to be our guide. We are turning back to doing what God wanted. He committed to follow the Lord and keep his commands, his regulations, his decrees with all his heart and with all his soul, thus confirming the covenant written in the book, and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. This is remarkable. This is a 26-year-old king who surveys the area and uses the influence of his post, first of all, to make the sign of the temple. Then he finds the book and he says, he begins, he's convicted by what they need to do and what they're not doing. And he begins to take that, what did he basically do? He read the word of God to all the people. Did he say, I've just issued an edict and you're all going to become uh, good Jews again? He didn't. He let the word speak for itself, and he read it to the people. A couple of really powerful lessons there. One is, he read it to all the people. The word of God is for everybody, not just for a ruling hierarchy, not just for the king and his household. It's not a state religion. In other words, the king is a Jew, so we're a Jewish nation. It's a religion for everybody, for every individual. That's unusual. As a matter of fact, that was not typical in that time. But the second thing is, it's the word of God that convicted him, and it's the word of God that convicted the people. That has powerful echoes through the centuries down to us. Because we are fond of saying, and this is true, is that we'll open our doors to anyone, and the Holy Spirit will convict people to come follow Christ. That's true. That's God's work, not ours. It's not our eloquence. It's not how good our worship is. That's not what brings people to Jesus Christ. We do those things because that's who we are, and we're called to do those things. But it's really a work of God that changes our hearts. But I want, you to, I want to add one little thing to that. As you look at the Scripture, not just this, but all through the Scripture, the method that the Holy Spirit 
seems to use over and over again to convict people is simply a knowledge of the truth. He reads this word to the people, and the people are convicted by the truth of God's word. That was true then, and that's true now. And that's why it's so important, and that's why we believe so highly in studying the word of God. It's not because we want to win trivia contests. It's certainly not because we think how much we know is going to get us into heaven. It's because we know that God uses the word, uses the truth of his word to change our heart. That is the mechanism the Holy Spirit so frequently seems to use. Josiah seemed to understand that. He didn't coerce the people. Oh, he started destroying temples and things, but he couldn't change people's hearts, but the word of God could. And so he read that to the people, and they began to recommit themselves to the covenant. If you stop and think about it, this is pretty amazing that in this short period of time, he has effectively arrested the spiritual development of this nation and turned it into a different trajectory. It's not necessarily a trajectory that would last throughout the centuries, throughout different generations, but it made a big impact in that generation. And he began to change the trajectory, the spiritual trajectory of Israel. Scripture says in 2 Kings uh, 23 that he began to destroy all of the idols. In fact, he not only destroyed them, he did it in a way that made it really apparent to them that it, it was sort of like, think about not just God saying, I'm God, making it like putting an exclamation point. For example, he defiled the Kidron Valley. He took human bones and he would burn them in that area. And even the other gods would say, well, we can't use this as a holy place. He said, that's right, because it's not a holy place. And he went to all the high places and he cut down the Asher poles and he burned their ashes and scattered them over the place. And he began to just tear down everything that had been built to all these idols. Again, what's happening here? What's happening is what he's doing physically is a manifestation of an inward commitment. And so you're going to see this theme throughout the scriptures. Did what he do by tearing down those idols, did that really make people more holy? No. What happened was the transformation in their heart and their conviction that was a manifestation, a sign of it. Let me fast forward to the New Testament. Sometimes Christians wrestle with the idea of faith and works. You know, I'm supposed to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, but the book of James says, show me your faith without your works. You know, faith without works is dead. And then we go, well, wait a minute, maybe it's the works. You know, how good do I have to be? How many good deeds do I have to do? And we sometimes get on that little roller coaster, don't we? Am I a good person? Well, I haven't done many good deeds. How do we reconcile that? Same way. The works and the deeds are manifestations of something that happened inside. It isn't rebuilding the temple that made him right before God. It's something that happened in his heart. But because of that, he inevitably rebuilt the temple. Because of that, they inevitably got rid of the idols. And because of our faith, we inevitably go do the works of Jesus in the world. So you see this theme. I know we think about New Testament, Old Testament, it's so different. It's not really very different. You see the same themes happening. For him, the manifestation of his faith was rebuilding the temple and destroying all the images of the idols. And frankly, that's a good challenge for us. We have idols in our lives too, things that we're a little too devoted to. And sometimes our faith is going to convict us and say, it's time to metaphorically, don't set your house on fire, metaphorically burn those idols 
It's time to tear down the temples to those idols. And don't be surprised in your Christian walk if you're not convicted sometimes that some of these idols have to go. It can be something just as obvious as temptations of lust and pornography to say, that has to be destroyed. And there are ways to do it, to put up boundaries and walls and say, that, that temple is going to get destroyed in my life. It may be our greed. It may be that we've got an idol of greed, possessions, and you know what, how you destroy that? Give. That's why the New Testament talks about giving. It's a great way to destroy the idol called greed. So we don't exactly go burn down buildings like Josiah was doing and scatter ashes, but we kind of are called to do that same sort of thing in our lives. It's find the altars you've built to the false gods, tear them down. That's what Josiah was doing. And then finally, he went out of Judah and he went across the border to the north. Remember I told you that Jeroboam, 300 years earlier, had built that temple in Bethel and in Dan? And the one in Dan is still there. The ruins of it, I showed it to you. The one in Bethel is not, and I'll tell you why. Even the altar of Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam 300 years before, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar, he demolished it. He burned the place, ground it to powder, burned up the Asherah pole, the, the, the uh, symbols for the other gods. Just as he had done at Bethel, he removed and defiled all the shrines at the high places that the kings of Israel had built in all of those areas of, of Samaria. Listen to this. This is going to sound brutal, but I want you to think of the prophecy 300 years before. There'll be a, a son named Josiah born to David, and what they say he was going to do he slaughtered the priests of those high places on that altar. And then he took human bones and burned it on that altar, and he went back to Jerusalem. Very interesting how this happens. 300 years later, that prophecy comes true to the letter in the person of Josiah. And so these are the signs that God said, this is what's going to be the symbol that my people have really turned back to me. 300 years later, that becomes true. From 930 when Jeroboam hears this man of God as he's sacrificing, saying this place is going to be destroyed, to 640 B.C., when Josiah comes in and says, it's time to destroy this. Let me pause there for a moment. We've gone through the spiritual history. I want to talk a little bit about the politics, because uh, Josiah's got a challenge on the political side as well, but there's such powerful, rich lessons from his spiritual journey. Question? Um, where was the Ark of the Covenant during this time? Was it lost when they were exiled, or had it already been lost? Good question. The Ark of the Covenant was in the temple, the time of Solomon. To, there are so many conspiracy theories about what happened to the Ark. But at this point in time, there's no particular reason to believe that the Ark was anywhere except in that temple, in the Holy of Holies, where it had always been, in 640 B.C., when Josiah is king. We're going to see in just a second when we talk about the politics that Josiah is going to die in 609 and the Babylonian, the exile is going to happen in 586. And I'll take you there politically in just a minute. In 586, people argue, what happened to the ark? And so there are three major theories that, that I would consider credible. Get on the internet, you'll find a hundred interesting ideas. But I'm going to give you three major theories. Number one, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they found it, and they either destroyed it or carried it away, and it's lost in history. Idea number two, 
The prophet Jeremiah, who, by the way, is alive and prophesying at the time of Josiah, he's kind of encouraging Josiah, the prophet Jeremiah, saying, yeah, absolutely, this is what God is saying. You have to turn back to God or disaster is coming. And so Jeremiah, who's also alive at the fall of Jerusalem, somehow got that out of Jerusalem and took it with him. And tradition says he went into Africa, to Ethiopia. And there's a church in Africa today. The Ethiopian church says, we have the ark. You can't see it, but we got it. Idea number three, Indiana Jones put it in a government warehouse, and that's where it is. All right, so those are the three credible ideas of where the ark is. So no one knows, but at this time, there's no particular reason to believe it's anywhere but in the temple. Good question. Um, when the Assyrians were coming through and conquering these lands and they deported all these people and spread them out, did they break up families, spread children out? How did they do that? Well, the first thing they did, I mean, it's really interesting, the archaeology, and I didn't bring you a lot of that because it isn't germane to our story, but they, they not only recorded all the things they did, they had pictures carved into stone of what they did. These people would impale people. They would flay people alive. They'd come into one town and just say, ah, cut the right arm of everybody in this town off. That'll make the next town, you know, you know come over a little faster. They just did brutal things. They killed a lot of people. After that, they, uh, there's no record, to my knowledge, that they made a practice of splitting up families. They simply made a practice of relocating this population so that they could never really coherently get together and become a threat. So I'm not aware of any historical record. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I'm not aware of any particular practice to specifically split up families. They simply wanted to split up the political and ethnic cohesion of these peoples. Good question. Okay. Well, let's go to the politics. So things, Josiah is doing some powerful things. Obviously, his heart is turned back to God. His people have been convicted by the word, and their hearts turned back to God, and they're refurbishing the temple and destroying all these idols. He still has some political issues on his hands. What's happening now is the Assyrians are really having trouble with the Babylonians. The Babylonians are coming up and coming power, and they're battling the Assyrians. The Assyrians, in a strange twist of fate, you know how politics work, call up the Egyptians and say, hey, these guys are bad news. You think we're bad, these guys are worse. And in fact, we already know they're going to conquer you next. So why don't you come help us fend off the Babylonians, and at that point, we'll just be buddies, right? And, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Well, the Pharaoh was a guy named Necho. Well, he doesn't believe this for a minute. He thinks, yeah, I come help you. You'll probably attack me in the next three or four years. But Necho thinks, what a great opportunity. Sure, I'll come help you. And as long as I got my army there, maybe I'll stay. What does that sound like to you? Let me think for a second. Syria, Russia, Iran. Yes, I'll come and help you with your rebellion problem, and maybe I'll stay. I tell you those things not to make so much a political commentary, but you don't have to be a genius to figure that out, is to say, this is not new. So Necho says, no problem. I'll come help you against those Babylonian guys. And so he begins to march north. Well, the problem is, for him is that Josiah has figured out that the best thing for his people is to side, in this case, he thinks that uh, he does not want 
the Assyrians uh, to be helped. He thinks that they're going to turn on him, and so he gets his army together, and he's going to try to block the Egyptians from getting to the north to help Assyria. So here's what the scripture says he did. When Josiah had set the temple in order, in other words, he's made these changes, and he's, he's gotten the people spiritually on track, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish. I'll show you where that is, but it's way up north. It's in the Assyrian territory, on the Euphrates River. And Josiah marched out to meet him in battle. Necho sent messengers to saying, what are you doing? What quarrel is there between me and you? Do you not realize you're just a little pawn on the international stage? Get out of the way. That's basically what he said. What quarrel is there between you and me, O king of Judah? It's not you I'm attacking at this time. That's honest. But the house which I'm at war, God told me to hurry. So stop opposing your God who is with me or your God and I are going to destroy you. Well, Josiah figures that no, the best thing for his people is actually to stop this, that the Babylonians will be better allies for him, which is actually true in the short run, but not in the long run. I'll tell you why in a minute. And Jeremiah's telling him this as well. So he goes out and he bravely begins to battle the Egyptians as they're going forth to help the Assyrians. This is a great little map. So you see Egyptians coming up through. He realizes his best place to fight them is at a really critical place called Megiddo. You see Megiddo there in the center of the map? Megiddo is an interesting place for a lot of reasons. First of all, if you've ever been to Megiddo, it sits in the Jezreel Valley. You can't just march anywhere you want to. They're not a good interstate system at this time. You're going to go through, you're going to march a big army. You're not going up and down the hills. You're going to be going through the really big flatlands. Well, on the way, about the best place to march an army as you're going to go up into the north is through this broad, flat, beautiful Jezreel Valley. And at the mouth of this valley is a hill, uh, and it's called Megiddo. There have been fortresses on that hill way back in history. And so Josiah says, that's the place. In fact, the Jezreel Valleys have probably more battles than anywhere else on earth. It is the natural crossing point of armies. All the armies in the north and the south, great place to fight a battle. Josiah knows this, so he gets the high ground at Megiddo. This is kind of interesting because if you think about the book of Revelation and the, book, and the battle of Armageddon, in Hebrew, the battle of Armageddon is at Har Megiddo. In other words, in the Jezreel Valley. And so this spot is where the book of Revelation says the great battle of the forces of evil versus God's people will happen. Well, that's where he sets up. He sets up at Megiddo, and he begins to fight there. Meanwhile, up in the north at Carchemish, the Babylonians are pressing the Assyrians very hard. Josiah loses this battle, and he's killed in the battle. He disguises himself because they always try to kill the king, but he ends up getting wounded by an archer and dying of his wounds in this battle, and they lose the battle, and the Egyptians go on, but they're too late. By the time they get there, the Babylonians have crushed the Assyrian Empire at the Battle of Carchemish, and they've taken over. And so Josiah's reign ends valiantly fighting for what he thinks is best for his people at that time. And I want to talk to you a little bit about just this king, Josiah. But to finish the historical story, so 609 B.C., Assyrians are conquered by Babylon. Babylon says, don't think I've forgotten Egypt, you're next. And so they begin to make forays into that area. Jeremiah the prophet 
is talking to the next king, Josiah's kids, and saying, your dad was right. You need to make peace with Babylon. They know that you've been an ally, so just don't mess with the Babylonians and you'll be okay. They don't like to hear that at all. So they put the book, read the book of Jeremiah. They throw him in prison. They don't listen to him. And in fact, they began to do some rebellious things. They decide, no, the next kings decide, I think Egypt's stronger and I think we're going to fight the Babylonians. This is the time period, by the way, when Daniel is taken by the Babylonians off. So all these stories, Jeremiah, Daniel, it's all happening in this time. Daniel's whisked away by the Babylonians and they say, look, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna do worse if you don't pay attention. These kings, bad political decision, decide, nah, Egypt's right here, they'll help us. Well, in 586, Babylon shows up, guess what? Egyptians are busy, had a prior commitment. They don't show up. And so the Babylonians destroy uh, Jerusalem and they destroy the kingdom of Judah, and they deport a lot of Jews back to Babylon. That's called the exile, and that's the end of this little piece of our story with the Jewish people. But Josiah's story is powerful because of what he did. And so uh, this is the, basically the picture of the Babylonian Empire, 586 BC. They destroy Judah, and they end up being quite successful against Egypt as well, but Judah is gone. It becomes a part of the Babylonian Empire. And from that time, all the way up until basically 1947, there's no real nation of Israel anymore. 586 BC, the exile, until modern times, there's no political, real political, there's a little brief time before the time of Jesus, but effectively there's no real political entity of Israel anymore. But fortunately, and I think partly because of Josiah's spiritual reforms, those Jews that went to Babylon stayed Jews. The Babylonians didn't disperse them, they just moved them and set them down in Babylon. And you'll see Ezekiel, who was with them, another prophet in the Bible, talking about that time period. But that spiritual core remains. And so the Jew, Jewish people, the nation of Judah, survived throughout history. So Josiah's legacy is actually quite long-lasting, his spiritual legacy. So why is he in the genealogy of Jesus? Why is this young king part of this? There's some really interesting lessons, I think, from his life. The first is this, is the courage. Josiah had the courage to break the pattern of his ancestors and turn back to God. His dad was a heathen man, his grandfather was a heathen man, the generations before him had been progressively less and less faithful to God, but this one man decides, not for me. I'm going a different direction. I'm going to worship the God of my father, David, and I'm going to begin to manifest that. I'm going to show the world that, tearing down the temples and, and fighting for God, doing the things he wanted, the courage to break the pattern. And that's a powerful lesson for us, because if you think about it, Jesus Christ is doing that today in all of our lives. Many of you have legacies of abuse or legacies of a lack of faith or legacies of anger. Leg we, we all bear legacies of things that we need to turn away from. That's the that's Christian story. We call it repentance. We call it turning away from those legacies in our life and turning a direction like exactly what Josiah did and said, I'm gonna serve God. 
So his courage to break that pattern continues today. The power of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus Christ to break the patterns of sin in our lives. Secondly, hope. Stop and think about what he, came, he inherited. He inherited a hopelessly pagan environment. If you and I had been born in that time, we'd say, well, maybe we're going to serve God, but this culture is gone. In fact, some of you probably wake up some days, pick up the newspaper and go, we're going to hang on and serve God, but this culture is lost. It's hopeless. The story of Josiah is, a, in some ways, a foreshadowing of Jesus in the idea that there is no time that is beyond God's power to change it. Josiah is a little example of that. He comes into a world that's completely rejected God, and yet you see what he is able to do by the power of God and the power of God's word. Remember, the power of the word turned the hearts of the people. So there's hope in Josiah's message for us as we look around at our world and think, how can we influence this? How can we change this? The power of evil is so great. How can we overcome evil? Josiah's story is a little foreshadowing of what Christians, the kingdom of God, that's what we are. We are the kingdom of God in this world, are able to do. Don't ever lose hope of the power of the word of God to change a culture that appears to be hopeless. We need to remember that. We need to be a people of hope, not a people of dread or fear, as the scripture says in Timothy. We were not given a spirit of timidity or fear, but a spirit of boldness and a spirit of power. And that power resides in the Holy Spirit and the word of God. And then finally, Josiah basically foreshadows Jesus in some interesting ways in that he restores a kingdom that's lost, that's gone astray, and Jesus basically comes into the world and restores a kingdom. It's God basically saying Satan is the ruler of this world and the kingdom of God has arrived. Remember what it was Jesus preaching? Jesus was preaching, repent, because the kingdom of God is here. You can't get a more vivid example. He said, look, you need to break the pattern of the legacy of your lives, of the sin in your lives. I need you to turn. Repent means to turn, to change your mind, because this new kingdom is here. That's what Josiah did in a little way, and it's an interesting foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do in a cosmic way, is the idea of restoring a kingdom devoted to God. Individually in our hearts, our lives are individual stories like Josiah, and our work as the people of God is going to lead to a cultural work like that. The kingdom of God will prevail in this world. That's the message of hope, and that's the power. Josiah's story is encouraging to me because it's a real-life, historical, political event that God used to say, let me show you what Jesus is now going to demonstrate for you in a big way. It's a way to build our faith. If God can do that in the midst of unbelievable forces in history against all kinds of odds, think what he can do in our world today. So I think Josiah is one of those great characters in the genealogy of Jesus that in ways he never understood pointed to God. And what is it that made Josiah useful? Was he smarter than all the other kings? Nope, we've seen his transcripts. His grades were no better than anybody else. I made that up. We don't know his transcripts. But basically, my point is, what is it about Josiah? You don't read anything in the scriptures that he was better looking, he was a better athlete, he was a lot smarter. What do you know about Josiah that made the difference? He decided to trust God. That's all it takes 
to be used in powerful ways. That's encouraging to you and me, is the idea, what does it take? I don't have any gifts that could do it. I'm no Billy Graham. I'm no Mother Teresa. I'm no, you know, gifted orator. I'm no rich person who could, you know, build clinics for poor. That does not make any difference. You look at the story of Josiah, he didn't have any of those things either. What does he have? He trusts in God. He has a simple faith and he decides to go put it into practice, and then God does something with it. That's exactly what God calls us to do, and he'll do great things with it. So I hope you are encouraged by the story of Josiah, because our lives are, in a sense, very much little microcosms of his story in history. Make sense? So be encouraged that God wants to do with you even bigger things Jesus said something interesting. As long as we're here, let me just tell you this because it's going to make you feel really good. It's going to make sense of what he said. Jesus was talking about all the people that came before him, all the Jews, the Abrahams, the John the Baptist. He's talking about John the Baptist. He's talking about all these great heroes of the faith. And he said this, even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than them. What did he mean by that? I'll tell you exactly what he means. He didn't mean, oh, you're a better person, you're smarter, you're more powerful, you have more money. That's not what he means. He just says, when you trust in Christ and come into the kingdom of God, God will do greater things with you even than he ever did with them. So God will do bigger things with us than all of these characters in history. They're there to inspire and encourage us. That's our message in this Christmas season. It's a message of hope for the world. And I think we need that now. Because you turn on your TV, it seems like a pretty hopeless place. This story is a great reminder that it's not. Next time, we'll finish our series with another character that you know pretty well, but you don't really know much about him. There's some fascinating archaeology around the time of Jesus that gives us some interesting hints as to what Jesus' life must have been like growing up in the household of a guy named Joseph. So I'm going to tell you some things about Joseph that you might not know. That's what we'll do next time. Thanks, guys.